0: And welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze aliens
1: in short, controlled bursts. My name is John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we are looking at Minute 2, which begins with the continuation of Carrie Hens' credit and ends with a shot of the Narcissus. You get the Narcissus back. I know. It's exciting. I'm excited about that. I love that little lifeboat. The shape of it is so um, unusual initially when you spot it in the distance because mm-hmm. it's got this big, dark shadow across. And so the shape of it is... Like, it looks like this weird triangle until you get in close to it, which is pretty cool. It's cool. It
0: also might... There might be a practical reason for that. We, teaser for when you we talk so about You are so smart. It. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. So we're getting a, more credits. We talked about Carrie Hinn a little bit in the last minute. Uh, you know, we'll talk about her as the movie goes along. We get a big shot of a bunch of different actors here. I think we do need to mention that the first actor credited on this particular title card that we get is Bill Paxton. Who at the time of this recording as re- was recently deceased. He passed away in a apparently in a what a failed surgical procedure. I've, I I never really got
1: the full story, but I know he went in for surgery and he passed I, away. Thought he was coming out. Paxton had this extraordinary career, though. Uh, you know, he really somebody who started out at the quote unquote bottom, in that he was working as uh, an you know set decorator, art art director. Carpenter um really was working you know b- way, way back behind the scenes and kind of worked his way through up through the system, was doing that production work behind the camera, eventually moved in front of the camera. um so he really knew about movie making, and yeah. um people who worked with him said that he was always really fun to have on the set because he was a filmmaker at heart. Uh, I met him once and he was a he was a blast to be around, really charming, funny guy. Uh, And so it's, yeah, it's a shame, shame to lose him. And I think that now when you listen to him on the DVD commentary, remember those quaint things, DVDs? Yeah. Uh, He's really funny and interesting on that. And I think that both having John Hurt pass, having Paxton go, uh, there's something – pretty impressive about these documents that they leave behind in terms of career. I always show decade under the influence in my class. It's amazing how many of those people aren't with us anymore. Right. And I'd much rather listen to Dennis Hopper talk about easy Rider than some professor gasing off down front. And so we have these records of these guys, uh, these men and women talking about how they made the movies that they made. And I think it's really, it's really extraordinary. They live on that way too, you know? Yeah. Like I said, we have these actor credits. I think we'll,
0: you know, as these characters are introduced, these uh, colonial marines are introduced throughout the film, we'll talk a little bit more about the actors and w- what they've done since and
1: what they might have been doing before. But that title does 77 seconds in, the title reveals itself. Yeah. And it feels faster, like the whole build-up to the title and the reveal of it, maybe because there's more information, maybe because it is actually coming up more quickly uh maybe because of the drum beats underneath the soundtrack i don't know but once again the movie is announcing itself as being something part of the alien universe but i would argue a little a little shinier and flashier and faster
0: you could suspect that maybe perhaps james cameron got some some advice from george lucas on this he made something very much the same but it's faster and more intense right like right away we're getting a little bit everything stepped up a little bit more like you said with the music it's not that i mean we talked about the value of that opening to alien and how that monotonal music and that slow slow build up of the title really gives you this sense and like kind of a little sense in the pit of your gut that something's going to be wrong here this is going to be a this is going to be scary. uh, I think is what we basically come to the conclusion of. This is going to be a scary movie. They're telling us that right away. Um, James Cameron's very specific talking about how he didn't want to make a scary movie with aliens. He said, it'll be scary. It'll have its moments, but it's more about intensity. It's more about exhilaration than it is about making a horror movie. So right away, he's already speeding up the pace. You don't have the sense of foreboding or anything from this title sequence. You're just getting a title sequence, but it reminds you of Alien still. The way the the title fades in, uh, comes into focus, it's different but similar. And I think different but similar is what we're going to talk about a lot in these first five to seven, eight minutes of the
1: movie. And it even uh, moves towards some kind of an homage to 2001, which Alien also had a few of those. In sure. this particular case, uh, James Horner's music comes in, and it's a straight-up, uncredited ripoff of that Cacciatorian ballet piece, which accompanies the Jupiter mission when it first appears. And when, when, uh, Frank pool is running on the centrifuge, I think it's mm-hmm. Frank, is it Frank or Dave? It's Frank running on the centrifuge. That piece of music is, um, uncredited, but totally ripped off. But yeah. then, but then, you know, what's James Horner, if not probably the most, famous rip-off artist to make movies, I mean, uh, it's movie music. I mean, he... he he's well-known for ripping himself off, right? Yeah. First, he started <laughs> by ripping off Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. So if you're not going to get Jerry Goldsmith for your movie, and it's an alien movie, Horner's probably the logical I next mean, step. They and did he, it was Star Trek already. He had made this... That's right. And yeah. he had made this superb score to Star Trek too. It is a really good score. It totally rips off Jerry Goldsmith, but yeah. it's a really good score. So... Here we are again, you know, with this kind of echo of 2001 as we move into the Narcissus and it's revealed to us as we get closer and closer that it's sort of bisected by a dark shadow. And so the shape of the Narcissus as it comes into view shifts before our eyes, which is a nice, nice trick.
0: So the Narcissus is coming in, you know, onto the screen, which leads us to talk about, you know, uh, uh, appropriately to talk about the effects crew. Uh, we have Stan Winston who won an Oscar for this film doing the effects, you know, Giger, we're going to have to talk about this, I guess, too. Giger's not in the credits here. Uh, we do not have HR Giger working on this film at all. And that's always been a point of contention. I think Giger had a problem with it. Correct. I mean, maybe you know more about this.
1: Didn't he feel that they didn't reach out to him? Yeah. But at the same time, he was not, shy about saying how sick he was of alien yeah after alien came out so i don't know he was and he was working on
0: poltergeist 2 i believe so there was a you know a literal schedule issue involved with him working on the film but they hired stan winston now do you know you know stan winston is well known to many cinephiles people that follow especially genre film science fiction horror films. and he
1: had worked with cameron on terminator and he, had worked he did with all that really cool terminator stuff
0: and is a legendary effects guy. So to have somebody else, you know, we have a design Geiger Geiger gave the design. He did the hands-on work um, on alien, you know, building the alien suit and, and the sets and helping with all of that. But, you know, maybe they saw the schedule conflict. They saw, we already have the designs. We're going to build on the designs. Maybe Cameron didn't want to mess around with
1: Cameron has said that in interviews. Yeah. That he He says my ego was such that I was, Interested in being in charge of all of the design elements, and I knew yeah. what the alien looked like, and I'd already designed the alien queen, and so, who needs this guy? Yeah. <laughs> and, Which is you know, what? whatever, fine, you know? I'm not, I don't think that, I think it does carry a credit at the very end, right? In the end credits, yeah, there sure is gets... a, there's a credit to the design, original alien design by H.R. Giger. Yeah. So, uh, I don't I don't know. I'll be honest, I
0: you know, the more, you know, we'll talk about this, actually, let's just go ahead and talk about it this production was was difficult the making of aliens was a very very stressful experience for i think most of the people involved in it as there were some clashes of cultural clashes involved in shooting the film there was time uh fox was apparently rigid about the release date um, and wouldn't give anybody any more time to make the movie therefore everything was kind of moving at this breakneck pace i think maybe in the end, it was probably a good decision not to have Giger. I'm not sure Giger worked under those kind of conditions. Maybe he could. But if there was going to be any conflict with Cameron and Giger, that's the last thing Cameron was going to need on this movie. He already had all these other problems. So, and we know that part of the problem is that Cameron was so obsessive about every detail of the movie that it slowed the production down. So if he's clashing with yet another guy, another t- someone who's more of a titan, like, if you get what I mean, like H.R. Giger, yeah. this is the guy that made this thing up. He created this thing. So who who are you to tell me, James Cameron, who directed The Terminator? Well, James Cameron is the director. He should be able to tell him. So it would have been this huge conflict that probably would have been more of a problem. It's probably, in the end, was the right decision. You know, as the credits roll along here, you know, when we talk about uh, Ray Lovejoy as the editor and what he had to go through <laughs> dealing with this breakneck production pace and all the struggles of getting everything in the can and sending him footage, apparently that poor guy was just in the editing room 24-7 getting footage shoved down his throat. Like, How much worse that would it have been if there had been another hindrance to the production?
1: Well, and and um, Peter Lamont's credit comes up, who was a legendary art director who had worked on all of the Bond films since Goldfinger, they seem to get on well i mean that they that seemed to be cameron being a designer himself there did seem to be something simpatico between those two guys as opposed to dick bush who was the cinematographer who didn't last very long and uh, who was replaced by adrian biddle who had worked on alien who had worked as the uh, focus polar on alien right yeah uh, it, and so there is a there is a cinematographic continuity that then occurs um, Biddle having been on set with uh, Ridley Scott making the original. And that probably was a good move. And Biddle would, of course, go on to to, to be a cinematographer on lots of other films.
0: Yeah. And funny enough, though, this he, he worked on Alien as the focus puller, mainly because he had worked for Ridley Scott making commercials. He went right back to doing that. He Alien was really just a one-off job for him. He wasn't interested in feature film work. Oh, you're he, talking about Derek Van Lent. No, I'm talking about Adrian Biddle. No, Adrian Biddle went on and shot. No, man. after this, after Alien, he didn't have him. He never, this is his first director of photography credit. He right. Doesn't. Right. So right. what I'm saying is he, he went and worked with Ridley Scott. Yes, I'll do this movie with you. But he went right back to making commercials until he got this opportunity. They come to him and say, you be the director of photography of this movie. I don't know what and what then, his story was. Yeah. After and that, then he you know, went his on career to was, yeah. Right. Yeah. But, you know, he probably looked at this and said, I know this. Like, this is probably a great place for me to get out of my comfort zone. I think he must have been very happy making commercials. The fact that he could probably gotten some kind of work after Alien, he went back to the commercials, but he came back, and uh, this is a beautiful looking movie. I think that he did a fantastic job on this and, you know, rightfully had a great career afterwards. Getting back to the effects a little bit. So we have the narcissist, uh, narcissist, the narcissist model here. This is not the model from Alien. Um, sadly, that thing disappeared after the reduction of alien. It was lost and they didn't, uh, they weren't even sure they were going to open with it. Uh, initially I think there was some question of whether they were actually when the, you know, they wrote the script, whether this was actually how they were going to open the movie, but it was in the treatment. It ended up in the script and they went ahead with it. So they had to make another narcissist. So they had hired these guys, the Skotak brothers, um, Dennis and Robert Skotak to do miniature work and they had to piece this thing together from apparently very limited photographic evidence. Now, I will say our, uh, our beloved listener, Eric Moore, out there probably has more photographic evidence of the narcissist than these guys did somehow. Um, but they apparently didn't have a whole lot to go on when they rebuilt it because um, I think it's a little – Now I might be wrong. It's a little off, right? It's not – I always thought it seemed a little weird. Like, it's not 100% the narcissist that we remember. And I think that there's a little bit... I don't know. Eric, tell Eric, us. Eric, help us, please. Because to me, even before I had this knowledge that it wasn't the model, i always felt a little weird about it. And I wonder if that's part of the reason why it's got that shadow for it. That know. they were a little worried about continuity. I don't know. That's just a speculation. But the Skotag brothers then do the model work throughout this movie. There's a lot of it. Uh, we have the drop ship later we have the um we have miniatures of the of the loaders now as far as the animation of the loaders and so forth uh as we go along i'm going to research further and find out you know if they were the ones that in fact did the go motion i'm not sure if they did but we do have uh, brian johnson back as well who did had worked on empire strikes back where they
1: used a lot of go motion so and some of those go tech models were also used for force perspective right yeah they did some trick shots where they would put the top of a set that would actually be a model and hang that in front of the lens of the camera. Right. That's one of the things that's so great about this movie is because Cameron came up through special effects and understood, working for Roger Corman, that you had to find the cheapest, most effective way to do something. A lot of times those are in-camera practical effects. And yeah. it's one of the things that gives the movie such texture.
0: One other bit of, we'll talk about the Scottak brothers more as the show goes on, but I did want to point out, Mitch, that Dennis Scottak is married to DC Fontana, a writer of many, many, many Star Trek episodes. So, so. we now have our Star Trek. Well, we kind of blew it references. earlier. No, we no, talked we, about had, uh,
1: We had we had one in the previous two, I think. So we're yeah. good. Star Trek, we're still mentioning Don't it worry, every we're, episode. We're, we're on still
0: going to say Star Trek um, as much as we can. Well, yeah, we talked a little bit about Ray Lovejoy. He comes up again. We get the producer credits, too. We kind of skip past those. We, uh, the Brandywine crew here, Walter Hill, David Geiler, and, and Gordon Carroll. Uh, what do we have to say about them? Uh, here's a continuity of producers, I guess, that we're getting from the previous film. But.
1: Well, and I think that they were tasked with this sequel, the yeah. idea of creating a sequel. And, and there are multiple stories about how James Cameron landed this job. He he tells the story that things weren't going particularly well in a pitch meeting that he had. He had a sort of a general go in and meet these guys, and he telling them about some things he was working on. And he said it wasn't going well, and he was about to leave. And they said, well, we do have this other thing, uh, Alien 2. And uh, he supposedly, after a little more conversation, went home and – wrote a 40-page treatment, which is a really interesting document, and we'll put it on the Facebook site so you can take a look at it, um, because it is this fascinating mix of um, script and treatment, and Cameron would also would refer to this as, as a scriptment. Right. But it's a great document to see how he distills this idea down to about 45 pages, very exciting pages, and that... He maintains that some of the ideas, like the Loaders and I think maybe the Colonial Marines, were part of another science fiction script he had been working on. And so he had a lot of these ideas and these things that he wanted to see happen. And so he sort of mashed those up with um, the with Ripley and the aliens, and suddenly he had something that he was very clear about. And there are lines from the scriptment that wind up in, in the actual first draft of the script. Well, and then there's the other story, right? Well, the story, you know, the, the, what I've always heard, or at
0: least understood, uh, maybe part of it is me making up the story a little bit in my own head, was that James Cameron was super hot off of Terminator, could get pitch meetings with whoever he wanted, and I had it in my head that he had already written this spec treatment for Alien 2, or Aliens, and he had a meeting with Gordon Carroll, and I guess Walter Hill and David Geiler as well were there. Um, I don't... In my head, I think he set up the meeting. He said, I got a pitch for you guys.
1: That's definitely not the case. That's we know that probably part's not, not true, Yeah, huh? that's probably was, definitely this was not This is probably a coming back in with the treatment. Yes, But
0: uh, according to Gordon Carroll, this is directly from him, they had the assumption that they were going to get this young hotshot director come in with a bunch of ideas that he was going to try to sell them on. He was going to have all these script pages. He was going to have all these things, these scenes playing out and try to sell them on some idea for a movie and what Carol says is he walked into the James Cameron walked into the room, walked up to a blackboard, wrote the word alien, added the letter S, and then wrote two lines to it to indicate dollar signs. And Carol says, and we gave him eighteen million dollars on the spot. Well, that's apocryphal. That's I mean, I'm not saying that he didn't write a dollar sign. That's a total James Cameron thing to do. I think that that sounds right. I'm thinking there's a lot of missing information. I right. don't think anybody drops $18 million no. on a guy for doing that. Print. I think it's a very romanticized... So this is
1: print the legend. Right. This is shot Liberty Valis. But it's a good story. Yeah. If oh, it it's a fun story. If it isn't true, I hope it's true. It should be true.
0: Let me let me ask you a, a screenwriting question. Like, a, Have you ever worked this way, a, a scriptment kind of thing? Have you ever sat down and broken down a script quite like James Cameron does? Or come up with a pitch that's
1: done in this particular way? Well... Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah. I, I'm the, I've sold pitches based on documents that you go away and you kind of rough out and you like a traditional. You, you come in and you give them, Meh, beat sheet. Beat sheets. Yeah, that's what I like. I mean, yeah. I mean, the truth is, is that a lot of times um, it's changed so much. Like now, the treatment thing has gotten really. It's become a much more significant part of the development process. They right. really expect a treatment. When I was working, it was much more of a you go in with a well thought out verbal pitch and you give them the pitch and they say yes or no based on that pitch, you know, and you might give them a leave behind that's one sheet, but you know, you never want to get into a situation where it's so complicated that they have to go tell their boss what you told them and then they'll screw it up. But this was a different situation entirely. You had very powerful writer producers involved in terms of the Brandywine team. And you had, Cameron's supposedly coming in with a very well thought out document and they wanted him probably for the job to begin with, especially when they saw that kind of enthusiasm. Um, I think it's interesting that the document is actually credited to, uh, Hill and Guiler and Cameron, which, and they share story credit, which makes me wonder whether or not Hill and Guiler wanted to get I don't know how much work they did on the story. I do know that they felt slighted that they didn't get any credit on the previous movie's script because Hill did do that big final polish and really reshaped it into something very different, you know, Mm -hmm. than what uh, O'Bannon and Shusett had done. So who knows? Maybe it was a way to just make sure that they got some credit on this. They deserved it, you know? Maybe they just made
0: sure Bishop was in it. Hey, make sure, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Or one contribution
1: always is to make well, you know, sure there's this, an Android. I mean, this kind of stuff happens all the time. John right. Millius wrote a huge chunk of Dirty Harry right. and didn't get any credit. Right. So he writes Magnum Force. They gave him the sequel after the fact. So, right. you know, it's it's a business. Yeah. Stuff happens.
0: Yeah, I think that's about all I have for this minute. I think that's all I have, too. All right. Well, that's going to do it for minute two. Um, Mitch, why don't you tell the listener where they can find us on the internet.
1: Okay. I don't know that I can do that, (laughs) but I can try. I bet that they can find us on Google play and stitcher. I bet they can find us on Instagram. I bet they can probably find us in just about any place that you can download uh, podcasts. You can also find us at
0: alienminute.com. You can our website, iTunes, obviously pretty much. If you go alien minute, if you just type that into a search on Twitter or Instagram, it's probably going to, it's going to be us.
1: That pops up so, and we have some cool stuff at T Public, we and we're going to have more cool stuff at T Public yes, as we move deeper into this with our short controlled bursts. Yes, we had we have
0: some aliens specific uh, design. Well, we have one so far, maybe more by the time this episode actually airs. Um, stickers, I'm really excited about the fact that they're doing these stickers. Real nice die cut stickers. They're if you just want a little something to show your love to the show, that's a nice cheap way to do it. Um so yeah, go to our T Public page, it's Alien Minute on T Public. Visit and, uh, our Facebook
1: page. Stuff. We're gonna put some more cool stuff on there, and I bet you Eric Moore is gonna come through yeah, well, with some
0: more cool narcissist stuff. <laughs> we've name dropped him about four times in this episode, so he kinda has to know. All right, well, uh yeah, like I said, that's gonna do it for minute two. We'll see you tomorrow for minute number three.